Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. We've been doing this show for 44 weeks now. And over that time, our listenership has gone up from a few hundred downloads to about 10,000. And a lot of the email we've been receiving lately has been asking for guests who can talk about real hands-on tactics for confronting issues like debt, labor, and solidarity. And some of the very best people working on those very problems have already been on the show, but in those early days before the vast majority of you were listening. So Astra Taylor and Thomas Goki came in on our very first episode to talk about Strike Debt, the Rolling Jubilee, and the Debt Collective, these artistic yet practical ways of unearthing and reversing the embedded inequalities in our economic landscape. And just two weeks later, we engaged with labor activist and organizer Esteban Kelly about how to build labor cooperatives and fight for workplace democracy. So we've gone back to those discussions and reworked them into a new show about the debt-based economy, its embedded oppression of labor, and the real people offering ways to change it. This has also inspired us to take a good hard look at Team Human, the radio show, and to make sure the ideas and mental landscapes we're exploring are balanced by equally practical and plausible approaches to realizing them. Team Human inspires and aspires, but it should also conspire. So let's breathe together. To that end, we're also going to be launching a Patreon campaign through which our team members can support the show and receive audio and other material in advance of public distribution, as well as some material that may really only be appropriate for committed team members. 
We'll also be offering early access to books and articles, signed special editions, and other unique artifacts and experiences. More on that next week. In the meantime, you can still join us as a charter member of Team Human by visiting teamhuman.fm, where you'll find subscription opportunities as well as additional information about our guests, ways to get involved, and ways to find the others. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Adam Brock, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Danny Wu, and I'm on Team Human. Hey, I'm Alex Rivetta. I'm on Team Human. I'm Kira Gond, and I'm on Team Human. So first up are the founders of the Dead Collective, Astra Taylor and Thomas Goki. Astra Taylor, you probably know her best for her movie Zizek, about the great philosopher, and her recent book, The People's Platform. Uh, Thomas Goki is an accomplished visual artist. He's a professor at Syracuse and a, a pretty significant debt activist. Both Thomas and Astra really seized the momentum of Occupy Wall Street in order to enact a direct action campaign of debt resistance. It's a really, it's, it's a bizarre but super simple concept where they buy back the debt of other people for pennies on the dollar. You know, they buy debt from the debt collectors and then absolve it. Goki and Taylor are really some of the, the best examples I know personally of how to fight back against the economic injustice of debt in America. Thank you, Astra Taylor and Thomas Goki, for uh, joining us here on Team Human today. Let's get right into it. How did Occupy and the conversations around that evolve into a direct action campaign of debt resistance? Uh, Thomas, you, I think we both have our our stories. For me, student debt was something that was weighing me down personally. After graduate school, I had over forty thousand dollars of it. I defaulted, which meant that uh, they actually added almost twenty percent to the principal as punishment. So the you know I couldn't pay, and then one day they they called up and said, "Ha ha, you now owe even more." So that sort of punitive reaction to the fact that I was struggling uh, made quite an impression on me. And when I got to Occupy, you know, I was I was there the first day, and as it grew, I noticed that something was really connecting people, and it was the issue of debt. The people were writing down how much they they owed, or as they phrase at the moment, how much they were worth to the one percent. And I just saw people with numbers that boggled the mind. You know, people with over a hundred thousand dollars of student debt. I actually paid off my student loans shortly thereafter, but what I wanted to do was use all the time that I would have had to work to pay off my stupid student loans to instead work to fight the entire system, and not just student debt, not just debt, but actually just inequality, because debt is is a major a part of the whole financial apparatus that we're, we, we need to face down right now. So for me, there was this sense that that was something that was drawing people to the park, not just Zuccotti Park in New York, but the occupations all over the country, and that it was something we could strategically latch onto and build after the 10 cities, the occupations were gone, you know, that it was something that we could could continue the spirit of Occupy with in a very innovative and strategic fashion. So that's what we've been doing. We've been, we, I, I think uh, the group Thomas and I are part of, you know, for us, the energy of Occupy hasn't, it hasn't ceased. If anything, we're more intensely engaged in it than we were uh, in September, 2011. So Thomas, you started, you were, uh, I mean, I knew you originally as a visual artist and you're an activist, but you know, you've got this piece 
I don't know when you did it. The total amount of money rendered in exchange for a master's of fine arts degree to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago pulped into four sheets of paper. Now, is that the kind of thing you did before Occupy, after, or sort of all the way along? That was that was before, yeah. So before Occupy, I was obsessed with debt and how how money worked in the education system. And so a lot of my work prior to Occupy was figuring out how we put a price on education and why we put a price on it and where the money goes. For me, the big, almost like a switch flipping in my brain was before Occupy debt controlled my life and I just thought I need to find a really clever, creative way to pay my debt. And within three or four days of being in the camp, it just sort of dawned on me. I, I shouldn't find a clever, creative way to pay my debt we should find a clever, creative way for all of us to stop paying our debt. That debt is the way that Wall Street occupies our lives. It gives us this enormous amount of power so long as we're doing it together. If we do it individually, it's essentially committing financial suicide. And, you know, early on in Occupy, there were working groups that were hashing out whether we should have demands, and if so, what what they should be. And, you know, I would sit in those working groups, but not really participate too much. And I was mainly thinking, what kind of force could we put behind a demand that was this enormously powerful lever if we all grab it and pull it at the same time? Well, there's there's so much there I want to unpack. But before we do, so, so it ended up, I guess, beginning as a hack that you guys came up with, right? Yeah, it began both as a hack and as, well, there was kind of the, in the classic Occupy style, there was also lots of circles and lots of discussions and lots of studies. I mean, that was one thing I loved about Occupy Wall Street was the first day there was a little march, but instead of standing and shouting slogans, we all got into circles and sat down and talked and debated and shared ideas. I know, it's it's amazing. That's That's what inspired me to actually become a university professor was Occupy. I was expecting a protest like what I saw on TV. You know, I got there like day four or something. And by the time I got there, it's just like graduate seminars <laughs> in alternative currency, a peaceful coexistence. And how do we deal with this parliamentary procedure? There was like a constant circle on just teaching people how to do general assembly hand waves, how to do a human microphone, who to read and the library open. I was like, oh my God, this is like the utopian graduate school and it's free. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and I think it was, it was like this radical breeding ground for nerds. So we really continued in that spirit. We had circles, we had these things called debtors assemblies where people would just come and step forward and because a big obstacle in organizing people around debt is, is their shame, the sense that they made a mistake, they took a bad deal, or they went to the wrong college or something. So uh, just these sorts of encounter sessions to get people thinking, but tons of study about finance. But then Thomas came to came to the group with this tremendous idea, which eventually was called the Rolling Jubilee. And what was the Jubilee idea? Well, it, in a way, it was sort of a, a sidetrack because... Initially, I thought we need to form something like a debtors union. That was that was the big thing that I was trying to get everybody to to work on. But in the process of doing that, I was meeting other people who, you know, there were several groups popping up that were initially about debt. The the Occupy Student Debt Campaign was sort of the one that I fell in with, and because everybody was talking to each other, you know, I learned something that just sounded too good to be true. 
I didn't believe it at first, but that personal debts get sold on the secondary market at a steep discount. And they're not willing to give debtors that discount, but they're willing to give it to investors. And I knew that that happened with the secondary mortgage market in a kind of loose way. But I didn't know that that was going on with medical bills or with credit card bills or some kinds of student loans. And if it was true, it seemed like it was worth raising some money, buying some debt, and then destroying it, partly to illuminate how debt functions and partly as a, an on-ramp towards this debtors' union project. So that's what we did. It ended up being getting way more attention, way more money, way more enthusiasm than we expected uh, in a lot of good ways. And then, but also sort of people, people stopped right there. They didn't see how it fit into this larger vision of, of debt resistance as a way of sort of emancipating ourselves from the power of Wall Street over our lives, over what we do all day. Right. But for those maybe who didn't catch the what of the rolling jubilee, it, it's basically there are these uh, banks and bottom feeders and credit people who buy debt, right, who buy the the loans that have been made to us, our credit card debt, our medical debt, our student debt, they buy it at pennies on the dollar, but still charge us the total amount plus interest plus everything. And the reason they only pay pennies on the dollar is because, you know, some of us are going to either go bankrupt or not pay or it might cost money. But what you guys did was basically you intervened at the level of those credit buyers and bought people's credit for pennies on the dollar and then basically dissolved it. Essentially, it's a hack. It's looking for the soft spot in the system and saying, well, wait a minute. If institutions can buy that debt so cheaply, why can't we buy it that cheaply and just do something different with it? Rather than use that debt to leverage people into bankruptcy and penury, why don't we use that debt to uh, relinquish their obligation to the the creditors? Yeah. I mean, we were the first group to ever buy debt to erase it that I that I know of. And we had to devise a whole legal strategy and a whole apparatus to do that. And and the point is really that debt, debt is a tradable asset. I mean, by others said, anyway. By it's always been a tradable asset for them, but not for us. It's just been debt to us. Exactly. And that there are these sort of merchants of misery buying your buying your pain, you know. <laughs> so in the case we we began the project by erasing medical debt. You know, so you've got somebody buying an individual's medical bills when they are already struggling and then extorting money for them when they didn't provide a service or anything like that. But for us, the flip side was always Thomas always used a phrase which I thought was so great, which was challenging the phony morality around debt. The idea that we're challenging the idea that your debts always have to be repaid. These debts, in our view, are illegitimate and shouldn't exist in the first place. Nobody should go into debt because they have cancer and nobody should go into debt because they want to get an education. Nobody should have to go into the red for the basic necessities of life. And so there's the kind of legal and systemic hack. And then there's also kind of trying to hack the imagination because the, the flip side of that, you know, there's the emancipating ourselves from debt that Thomas called attention to the no, I won't pay, you know, I want to be free of this debt. But then there's there's the other question, which is, well, then how do we how do we provide these services? You know, what kind of economy would we build instead? You know, we're also trying to get people to see that their debts are connected to a, a larger system of how we subsidize social goods or, or don't subsidize them in the case of the United right. States. I mean, to get people to really think something, rethink something that's so basic, that m payment you're making every month, you know, who is profiting from that? Why does it even exist in the first place? And is it legitimate? 
Right. That and that goes to the what what Thomas was talking about before when he was first thinking about this and then asking questions that no one seems to know the system. I mean, when I was first exploring debt and central currency and where this comes from and reading about alternative currencies and the market monies of the late Middle Ages and and uh, grain money and grain receipts and money without interest, I started to ask bankers and people at Goldman Sachs and financial officers of our nation, you know, people who work as uh, uh, assistants to, to the, the Federal Reserve about debt and money and different money systems. And they had no idea the easiest example I could bring up, it's almost as if, if if every computer in the world had the Macintosh operating system on it, you wouldn't know that such a thing as an operating system existed. You would just think that's computer. So these folks, and they're educated and in many cases smarter than we are, They nonetheless, they don't challenge the underlying assumptions of the money system that we use. They don't think of it as a money system. They think of it as money. And the only way they can understand having transaction or investing in a in an economy is for it to be debt-based central currency that's issued from a central monopoly bank. And once you have money that's based in debt, that's very function is to be paid back to the bank with interest, then everything else becomes debt-based. Our business becomes debt-based. Our trading becomes debt-based. Our education becomes debt-based because that's the only, that's what we have is debt currency, not money. I mean, I agree that there are there are many experts who are trained not to ask why, but kind of just trained to keep things going, right? They just, they want to to sort of maintain the status quo. But we could have our current currency and still not have people be deeply indebted for, you know, healthcare and, and education and these things, right? I mean, there could be a world where we overhaul our, our money system, but we could also just have, you know, publicly financed social services. And that would go a long way to eliminating some of the misery that Thomas and I and the rest of our collaborators see with our membership. I mean, we see people who are not just financially suffering in terms of, you know, wondering whether they'll ever be able to have a home of their own, whether they'll be able to actually have a chance to get a real education because they were defrauded by a for-profit college. You know, we are, we're now engaging with these folks through this debtors union, uh, which is now, it now exists and it's called the Debt Collective, debtcollective.org. You know, and we can do a, a whole lot to make the situation better for millions of people even with the money system as it is. Right. In other words, the 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 fact that everyone in America is basically one illness, one divorce, one accident, one fire away from bankruptcy is not a function necessarily of central bank-issued currency. It's a function of the way that we prioritize our spending as a nation. Mm-hmm. And it's something that really, you know, for me, the challenge here is, you know, looking at the way the economy has shifted after the, the 70s, right? So there was a sort of supposedly golden age, mid 20th century, and trade unionism was high and, you know, minimum wage would allow you to kind of live a, a decent life. And then something, you know, happened starting in the last four decades or three decades where unions were under attack. So people didn't have that power. And I think that that's something we should talk about is is people power. Social services started to be eroded. The economy became more globalized. You know, so what do you do? What do you do to push back against all those forces? And that's why I think this idea of uniting debtors to leverage their, the economic power they have through through debt is is such an important and necessary idea because we've got there are so many people, there are so many Americans, you know, who are not, they're not able to band together with others because 
there are, there's nothing for them to join. They don't have a stable job, so they can't join a regular labor union. But they sure as hell have debt, and that debt will follow them to the grave. And so that's something for them to uh, connect with others over and to exercise some sort of power to change things. What, what do they get by banding together other than emotional support? Well, you know, our debt is someone else's profit. And if we band together, we have the ability to cut off that supply of, of profit. And that's there's real power. There's real bargaining power. There's no good reason for Goldman Sachs to exist. We could structure banking in an entirely different way. For me, it's sort of this classic nonviolent tactic. Look at the way in which your daily life, your behaviors are connecting with these systems of exploitation and find creative ways to just stop cooperating with Like them. what? Well, like stop paying your monthly bill, stop paying your, your credit card bill. But it only works if we get lots and lots of people and people who have similar creditors in order to gain some some bargaining power. Over right. Them. I mean, right, right now it feels like, you know, the only people who could do that are people with nothing to lose. You know, if I joined in and stopped paying my credit card bill, bad things will happen to me and my family, right? I mean, on the one hand, yes, you might have a lot to lose if you're someone who, you know, is managing to kind of live a comfortable life. You, you might also have something to gain by banding with others and let's say engaging in collective bargaining to get a better interest rate on the credit card bill you're paying month after month. And, and we're kind of in that level of abstraction right now, but Thomas and I have been you know, with with our collaborators at the Debt Collective, we've been putting these ideas into practice over the last year with a group of, a growing, an ever-growing group of uh, people who attended for-profit college who declared the first ever student debt strike. People have been on, on strike. It started with 15 people who took this stand and basically said, look, our debts are, are fraudulent. Not only were we misled and lied to when we enrolled in these degree programs, we also believe education is a human right, so there's a sort of bigger moral claim. The 15 people grew. It's now hundreds of people. And they immediately got the attention of the authorities. And there have been some very concrete results. Right now, there are sessions happening in Washington that are going to be setting the rules for future students who are in similar boats who have been defrauded, creating some sort of mechanism for them to challenge their debts and to hopefully get debt relief. So, I mean, we started this little campaign with 15 people and overnight basically proved our theory that people banding together and refusing to pay their debts, trying to utilize the leverage they have, could provoke very interesting and promising reactions. Now, the, but the, the the people going to Corinthian or another mm -hmm. uh, uh, scam university, if we can call it that, they're in a slightly different boat than someone who, you know, gets in $200,000 debt for going to MIT or Harvard. It's a difference of degree. <laughs> um, rather than kind. So what's interesting is these scam for-profit colleges and, you know, Harvard, they're all connected back into the same federal student loan system, right? So there's a sort of different brand on the surface and you have different opportunities based on the brand. But the financial aspects are far more similar than people would like to admit. Yeah, I mean, whether you're going to a, a state school or a community college or an Ivy League school, we have a for-profit student debt industry. We have a for-profit Department of Education. There really isn't that much difference, I don't think, between 
a technical for-profit university, a lot of whom are being reborn as nonprofits, the same way that, for example, FIFA is a nonprofit technically. Yeah. But they're still generating massive, massive amounts of profit for some people who are plugging into the system in some ways, which is why, Douglas, your framework of like program or be programmed has been so useful for me. They're, they're generating a lot of profit for the people who are designing that system. What would it look like if the people who are providing all of that profit through debt could cut off those resources and redesign the system differently? We can educate each other without forcing people into a lifetime of crushing debt. That's entirely possible. How do we get from where we are now to the education system we would like to see? Some massive civil disobedience is going to be necessary. So I don't want to minimize the risk involved. There's always risk with civil disobedience. But I, I think it's less than people are afraid of. And having these initial victories with the Corinthian debt strike, you can almost see the fear melt away. The, when we talk to people around the country, there's a real eagerness. People want to know, when can I strike my debt? And, you know, we might not be at the place right now where you could, you know, strike a $5,000 credit card bill, but we could get there quicker than people think. I, you know, there are, we're being pretty smart about how we're starting. At least I feel pretty proud about how smart we've been targeting our initial strikes and the way that we think we can build. Uh, and I think that fear is going to melt away with, with some victories. Yeah, I mean, a part of the thing that's interesting about it is that I guess it constitutes true protest because it's kind of unrecognizable, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It's like they're used to, they would understand if you, you know, marched in front of Visa or Goldman with picket signs and said, no student debt, no student debt, and made an appointment to get arrested and whatever, okay, it's an issue, blah, 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 you know, and a couple of Congress people will take it up and then it goes away. But you're doing a, it's a new mutation, it's a new protest theme and it's very unrecognizability you know makes it very hard for the traditional kind of cultural immune system to target it and kill it do you know what i mean it's unique yeah it's unique it's as unique as the rolling jubilee i mean the rolling jubilee was, the, was this really impressive hack of the secondary debt market and we've erased almost 35 million dollars of people's healthcare intuition debts to date, and actually, there'll be more exciting news from the Rolling Jubilee later this year. It's not over yet, even though we we stopped soliciting donations quite a while ago. But the Rolling Jubilee, you know, inspired people and fired up their imaginations. And I, but I think the debt strike, as a kind of new form of of not just civil disobedience but economic disobedience, is is kind of just as interesting. And for me, looking at history, you need that economic power. I mean, I think you're exactly right. We could go protest and. Block an block an intersection and and uh, shout some slogans like I was saying and and sometimes those things are good and necessary and sometimes they're all you can do, but you know we want the fear of of the debtors to melt away but we kind of do want certain people to be afraid and they're afraid when they feel that you might threaten them in their in their wallet right when people when workers say I'm going to withhold my labor you know and shut down the factory. And shut down your profits until you negotiate, until you improve these conditions or give me the weekend or whatever it is. I mean, I think debtors are in a, a similar situation where they, 
need to make that kind of strategic threat. And it has to be backed up by all sorts of research and legal tactics so that it's not just a sort of financial suicide for folks. And that's really what we're trying to do with the debt collector is, is to be really smart, but also to be brazen. Yeah, the beauty of a debt strike, it's like, what, are they going to get a scab then to come in <laughs> to pay your debt? <laughs> you know, I think the 1% should be those scabs. You know, they're, right. they're one of the, the the name debt collective for this, this new organization, one of the fun aspects of it is that on one level, we want to be debt collectors. There are people who owe debts who are not paying those debts. The owner of Corinthian College, the 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 primary shareholder was Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo owes a debt. Somebody has to pay this off. It shouldn't be the taxpayers. It shouldn't be the students. It should be Wells Fargo. If we band together, we can collect it. We need something like the people's repo man. Some debts should be repaid. And those are the people who have been walking away from their debts, right? They're the people who are, who, you know, use corporate bankruptcy to slither away from their responsibilities or who demand massive federal bailouts, right? So right. the double standard is there too. So what's what's coming up and what, what can people do? So somebody's listening to this and they're like, yeah, whether they have debt or not, they realize the drag that debt is putting on, on Team Human, um, for, <laughs> for lack of a better generalization. I mean, what, what do we do? How do we join? What's coming up? One of the early iterations of our, our group, sort of after the encampment and before the Rolling Jubilee, I think we we collectively wrote something called the Debt Resistors Operations Manual, which is still available at strikedebt.org, and it was actually published as a book, if you like your paper. So I think reading that is a wonderful place to start. It's sort of half survival guide, half systemic analysis, and lays out a lot of our thinking on these issues. And also, you know, you can't, you can't devalue that that thing that we were inspired by in Occupy, which was people getting together and talking and organizing debtor circles and just beginning that process of getting over the shame and getting over the stigma and sharing stories and devising local approaches. But we will definitely have things for people to be involved in. And we are we are going to expand beyond the focus on Corinthian on the for-profit college sector to make the connections to so-called traditional college and university students in the months ahead. So people should sign up so that they can be part of that if they want to when the time comes. But yes, just keep keep watching this space. And I should say, if you if you did attend Corinthian College, whether that's Everest College, Wyotech, or Heald, or if you attended ITT, AI, or the University of Phoenix, DeVry, you can go to our website and fill out what's called a defense to repayment form, which is one of these, I guess you could call it a hack, it's uh, a little used process to, within the law to get this fraudulent debt discharged under certain conditions. And until we created a streamlined process to file a claim, we're only aware of five people who had ever filed claims previously. There's now over 7,500 people who have filed a claim, and the Department of Education doesn't know what to deal with it. It's the law. It is the law that these fraudulent debts should be discharged. And what we're battling over in the, in the meantime is exactly how, that, uh, how following the law will be implemented. And of course, there are extreme forces at work that says, well, the law doesn't apply when it means poor people don't have to pay their debt. It's a wrestling match, but I think uh, in some ways we've already won. In some ways, the struggle continues. 
and it'll probably be another year or so before we get a final result to this. Yeah, one thing you you mentioned that I want to, I guess, want to go back to and maybe close with here is the shame and the stigma that's associated with debt, and how, in many ways, debt and the mythology around debt has been constructed, you know, really to elicit those human emotions from us. You know, that this notion of shame and the stigma around debt is part of what disempowers us. It's part of what uh, what keeps us from forming any kind of solidarity around the mutually crippling effect of debt. You know, it's so it's so hard because we think of it as something that we personally did wrong or something that we want to hide from our neighbors rather than band around. You know, what are you finding is the sort of the easiest way to help people reframe debt from being some personal shame to being a collective foe? For me, it was that first day to Occupy, right? It was That was the first time that I had come out of the shadows as a student debtor. And it, instead, it was this thing that just kind of would come to me in the middle of the night, like $40,000, you know, with interest. What is it? It was going to be, what, a hundred grand or something by the time I had finished. So... We have to go from the individual to the collective. We have to start telling ourselves and each other that these debts are not our fault, that there's a bigger debt that's not being paid, and that's the debt of a decent society to provide health care and education and roofs over our head, you know, to provide in, in, this, in this world of abundance. Why are we stuck in this scarcity mindset and this sort of scarcity economics. I really think it's it's talking to each other because our slogan has always been, you are not alone, A-L-O-A-N. And it's really, it's really true. And for me, you know, my life changed meeting, meeting Thomas and meeting the rest of our collaborators. And, you know, we're a very small group. There's not even 10 of us. And we've managed to do, I think, quite an impressive amount in just a couple of years. And so I hope that that's inspiration to people to kind of think creatively, to realize that whatever system we have, we can change it, that humans did write it and we can rewrite it. Exactly. I don't know how to say it better than you just did. So thank you, Esther Taylor and Thomas Gokey, for being clearly for being on Team Human and uh, you know, leading the charge against the dehumanizing systems that uh, mean to uh, well make the world a, a place more for systems than for people. Thank well, you, thank friend. you for for inviting us to to be a part of this conversation. I feel more human as a result. That was Astra Taylor and Thomas Goki of the Debt Collective. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. My name is Micha Sifri. And I'm on Team Human. I'm Ramesh Srinivasan, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sylvia Zia, and I'm on Team Human. I am Tessa Lena, and I'm on Team Human. Up next on this special show is a conversation I had with Esteban Kelly, Executive Director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Kelly's work, like Astra and Tom's, provides a model for overcoming shame, forging solidarity, and building the types of cooperative systems that foster mutual connection, dignity, and the empowerment of laborers. Kelly set the tone for Team Human with his embrace of solidarity as an organizing principle in the fight for justice. So solidarity feels like a big word, you know, like from the Union era, or maybe even Stalin or Marx. And solidarity to most of us sounds like work. 
you know, where <laughs> most of us like me, you know, I just want to get a job. I want to do my thing and not worry. I'm not political. So Esteban Kelly, executive director for the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, co-ops are beautiful. They are beautiful. Engagement is an ideal. Co-ownership sounds kind of cool, but I just want a job. Why do I want to bother with all of that? Well, I think it's more <laughs> than just wanting a job, right? That solidarity is about, it's, it's deep. And so there's that. And I think that people crave connection uh, much more than, you know, having one job or one relationship or one thing to do. And so it's it it actually gets to a more fundamental human need about connection. But don't I have Facebook and and uh, J date for that? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you do. Perhaps you do. And and those are platforms that, when used well, I think can expand the opportunities for solidarity, for hearing what's going on in other people's lives, for having empathy, for staying in touch, and then for really showing up for one another. And it's it's a two way street. It, it, it's not only the work that is involved in being there for your friends, you find out that they're sick and you can walk over to their house and bring them some soup or whatever, but it's also the moments where you're sick or where you just had a relationship end and you need comfort or a companion or uh, moments where you lost a job and you're looking for some income and, and maybe you can help fill in a gap by watching your friend's uh, small children or maybe cooking them lunch uh, because they're really busy and that helps them and that helps you. So solidarity fundamentally gets at a win-win, and it's it's a concept of um, working out of your your most your most radical sense of self-interest for mutual benefit for you and other people. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I mean, I find that many times the people who are most likely to gravitate towards cooperative engagement, whether it's social cooperatives or economic cooperatives are the people who can best afford to. You know, you go up to Ithaca or Burlington, Vermont, or Great Barrington, or San Francisco, you know, or t a, a relatively wealthy community of mm. people who realize, well, this life is not actually fulfilling me, and sure. <laughs> I'm working harder for each, you know, each padding of insulation I provide against mm. the torrent of the masses or whatever. Maybe there's another way. You know, where... It feels like what what needs to be done is that the case for uh, cooperative engagement uh, needs to be made for the people who need it most, for the people who are, you know, if you're working three jobs, you know, you do the McDonald's in the morning and Home Depot in the afternoon and then Amazon Turk at night, it's really hard to even conceive of what's the alternative. There's no time to go do it and to find it. Yeah, I, I think that that's... That's what the co-op movement of your kind of came from was this idea of opting out of saying, you know, enough is enough. I don't I don't really like the way things are running or this is this doesn't feel like a fair deal. And people with relative, whether it was educational, intellectual privilege or based on wealth, like you were saying, or, or geography or culture and circumstances that that they for consumer um, movements or for some of the early worker co-op movements um, and sectors really said, you know what, I'm going to opt out of the mainstream and do this alternative thing. And I think what's changed in the last at least 15 years, certainly since the turn of the millennium, is that it's no longer 
led by that cultural moment, the sort of echo of the the social change in the 60s and 70s, that what's happening is is economic drivers are really what's pushing the growth that we're seeing in the co-op sector, especially for worker co-ops. Even just in the last, since 2010, 60% of new worker co-ops that have been developed have been owned and operated by people of color. Um, And largely those aren't Ivy League people of color. These are people who are in low wage um, industries and sectors. And even the largest worker co-op in the country, uh, Cooperative Home Care Associates, which is up in the the Bronx, in the South Bronx, which is, by the way, one of the poorest congressional districts in the country, it's uh, it's got about 2,000 worker owners who are almost entirely women and mostly women of color. These are Black and Latino women who do assisted home care. That's a low-wage sector to be in, but the advantage of being in a worker cooperative is that the benefits that they have, the wages that they get are way more competitive compared to the jobs that they could be doing, doing assisted home health care in a traditional company, or like you were mentioning, the alternative, which would be, you know, working three jobs at McDonald's plus Burger King plus Wendy's. Right. Well, how do they figure out how to do this? I mean, does like a some kind of union co-op organizer come with a handbook or is it is it just figured out? Well, right now, right now, there's a plurality of ways that people are developing worker co-ops, and some are developing through expanding existing ones, whether that's franchising or just picking, going into a bigger location or a second location. Some of them are through converting existing businesses that have already been up and operating, either as a succession plan for maybe uh, an owner who's retiring or or has a change of, of passions and wants to sell the business to the workers. So it could be from expansion or conversion or startups. And the startups can come from he- heavy organizing and planning and capital intensive things or, or more of a union organizing kind of model. Or sometimes they come from a more entrepreneurial space where people are motivated by their own idea and business plan. And these are often small businesses um, and then they reach out to the co-op sector and, and are able to tap into the technical assistance um, that we have in our community to get things up and running. And that involves everything from, you know, getting a business plan developed and vetted to figuring out those internal structures and systems. But I think that the fundamental difference in, in the structure of worker-owned businesses and, and worker co-ops is that we've cut out all the fat. Instead of having to run all your operations, have a successful business, and then skim off any surplus and give it to somebody who doesn't work there <laughs> because they invested in it and it took a risk, the people who took the risk are the ones who work there. And so that money gets retained. There's actually a kind of a wonky process um, set up by the IRS where you can keep some returned earning, retained earnings uh, out of your surplus at the end of the year. So instead of profit being distributed out to shareholders for worker-owned businesses, you can retain that without it being taxed and save it in an internal account and reinvest it in the business. And then you can distribute it a couple years later back out to the workers. So you're right. able to, um, to sit, rather than the business paying taxes on it and then paying out um, some sort of dividends or shares or extra bonuses to workers and then them paying taxes on it again, you can avoid that double taxation. It's a special statute that only exists for worker co-ops. So those right. are some of the ways that that we're able to actually be more profitable, reinvest traditional investor-owned businesses. Yeah, and I guess you know, and and in most cases, actually less risky. You know, the the argument kind of against being part of a worker co-op is the guy who's like, I don't want to own the business and have the risk of whatever. I, that's my boss. I just want to go to work. 
you know, do my job, get my paycheck, come home, watch TV, play ball with my kid, go back to work the next day and not have this headache of worrying. But the fact is when you work for even a a, a Twitter or a startup or one of these uh, uh, kind of high flying uh, uh, internet Companies, these are companies that are are more like flip this house than they are exactly. like homes. These are companies. Twitter is it makes five hundred million dollars, you know, a quarter. Yet it's in terrible risk of going under because yeah. the original investors want one hundred x or a thousand x on their original investment, right. which is just not going to work unless Twitter becomes Facebook or Google or something that one hundred and forty character. A messaging system just isn't, you know, but <laughs> if the investment is the time, the same time, you know, the same labor that you would have put in, um, if now that's your, your, also your investment in the company and there's not this giant group of shareholders to pay back, you know, you become much more like a family business where, you know, the object of the game is less to figure out how much money can I make with this business that I can then give to my grandchild as cash, and rather, how can I create a business that's still running strong when my grandchild's alive, so they can go work in it? You know, which is a it's a it's a much less risky approach. I mean, you may not yeah. have you know you may not get to sell it tomorrow, but um, you get to operate it a hundred years from now. Well, and you also can sell your shares. Yeah, you know, as a part owner and part stakeholder, you can work there for a whole career or for 10 years or for as long as it makes sense for you. And you could still sell those shares and take that money. And maybe that becomes a startup money for your grandchild or funds for their education or something else. So that's different than just sort of collecting a wage because most of us can't afford to invest in businesses that we don't work in um, the way that you know Wall Street operates. And you actually do have that extra asset in your life. And that's incredible. I mean, that this has been, become a source of wealth building for people, like I was saying, this, this new trend for people who are not from owning class backgrounds, who are maybe from poor or working class backgrounds, and certainly people who, even millennials, where they, they might have come from a class background where there might have been hopes one day um, of them having a certain source of wealth, but the precarity of the way that labor is shifting and jobs and careers and debt, uh, all those dynamics, now those kinds of securities are evaporating. And so it becomes an opportunity for that entrepreneurial spirit to not just be this gamble where you risk it all on an idea and it might go belly up. Or even family-owned right. business, which I think we're most similar to as 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 a network of small businesses, mostly small businesses, where that risk is is all taken on by one core family or a family with some supporting friends. And if it doesn't work out, then everyone every it hurts everyone, and they all go under. And that was that whole network that was there to support one another. So if that project fails, that was the security for for the uncle. Who might have had a project that they were hoping to, you know, or or maybe that was grandma's retirement uh, money that she contributed some of it. So what's different about worker co-ops is that we're taking, rather than it being the familial bond, we're taking a similar idea of distributing that risk among more than just one sole proprietor or two joint proprietors and distributing it among, it might be 10 people, it might be 20 people, it might be 30 people, it might be 50. Um, so that shares that, that's, that, that, that distributes that risk. It means that nobody's family is going to go under if the actual project doesn't work work out. But meanwhile, you've got those 50 people or those 10 people 
all having a vested interest instead of one manager or something in making sure that that business does work out. And right. And a, plus, a, it's a it's a proof of concept. Also, I mean, in a sort of kickstarty way, even though you're not getting capital from these people, if you're able to get fifty or a hundred people believing enough in a business to come work in it, then maybe it's a good idea. You know, it's a sure. kind of a, a it's a it's a pretest of your your uh, uh, your business plan. Whereas if you're opening the seventh pizzeria on the block, you might not get fifty people uh, coming to work for exactly. you because they're like, there's enough pizza here. You're so stupid. Or the people working, they're not necessarily concerned with making the business the best the best one, or the most sustainable one, or the friendliest one, or the most community oriented one. They might just be there for a paycheck, and they might just mm-hmm. be there for one summer. And that's different than a business that people have much more of a stake in being good neighbors and and um, and really giving back to their community or having the job be meaningful. And in order for it to be meaningful, for you not to be bored at your job, just punching into a shift, really, really having more of a stake in in and a say in how it's operated, what the what the difference is from a business perspective, how it all runs, and also being involved in in a community in 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 the day to day operations with your coworkers. Yeah, well, you know, so many of us have been basically if you're under 50, you've been raised in a world where the idea of a regular job is foreign anyway. You know, yeah, there's no yeah. idea where you go work for some company and get a pension and and have security. That's kind of gone. We're all used to being well, to living in precarity and and kind of sure. perpetual disenfranchisement. But on a certain level, you know, as you describe it, it seems to me while while precarity and disenfranchisement may not be prerequisites to participating in something like this, they're awfully good motivators. You know that we're maybe moving into a kind of a you know the meek inherit the earth phenomenon here, where those who still have the ability to hold out hope that their middle class dream is going to work for them, in some ways, are the least likely to actually reap the benefits of the distributed economic models that you're talking about. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting is um, getting at those, four, those, those core values um, that people hold up, things like democracy and, and having voice and empowerment and participation. It's so funny how that becomes a, a hobby or a side project. Like you can have a voice in your after school club or you can have a voice in the PTA that we don't think of democracy being incorporated into our economic process. And as that that whole sector of our society, which is so significant. And so what we talk about is not just co-ops and worker co-ops, but actually workplace democracy. That if you're spending five days a week, and like you were saying, those of us who are under 50 are probably spending six days a week <laughs> um, at, a, at a workplace, well, it may as well be fulfilling and empowering and participatory and all those other things. And so what we have the advantage of seeing in democratic workplaces is people experimenting with everyday economic democracy, right? That democracy isn't something where you you uh, click on a bunch of blogs and follow their polls and maps, and, and then once or twice a year, you get to see the results or you actually get to vote yourself. But that it's part of the day-to-day decision-making that most of us have never had the privilege of actually participating. So being, being able to do that in a democratic workplace 
which doesn't mean that it's all completely flat and you have to come to consensus, right? Many of these have voting just like you do at a union or might have managers or might have bosses. But the difference is that those bosses are all accountable ultimately to all of the workers who are the main stakeholders there. So the workers can fire the boss. The workers supervise the boss. <laughs> they probably get paid just as much as the boss. Or if the boss gets paid more, it's for a reason, you know, that, that, that it, may, it might be incentivized or it might be based on their experience. But either way, the workers are the ones who set the vision and the, the goals and the metrics. This is the kind of business we want to be. This is the way we want to shift things. This is the way we want to expand our product line. Or these are the ways we want to treat our workers. These are the kind of benefits we want to see. It's, it's really incredible to, to see what's happening in, in a lot of the businesses within our membership at the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, where people, given the opportunity to govern and manage the business themselves, are coming up with all kinds of um, you know, sabbaticals just for, um, for personal study and learning languages and uh, time for writing books or traveling, spending more time with their family. And then they come back to the workplace enriched and bringing that expansive perspective to bear on the day-to-day operations of the business. Right. I mean, and the the most people who manage businesses today say, well, if you let the lunatics run the asylum like that, they're just going to tear down the business. They're going to take all the money and give themselves vacations and educate themselves. And who's left to to mine the ship? But I think the real, the argument is that those people are also the owners of the company. They have a vested interest in the company actually working. You know, exactly. the, if the workers just did that, they lose their business. So they are thinking, you know, both ways at once. They're thinking as as owners. They're thinking as community members who live in the in the pollution range of the company they're working for. They're thinking as customers because they probably use the products and their family uses the products, so they don't want them to be bad. And they're thinking as workers who have jobs and owners, shareholders who have to reap the dividends. So you know, each stakeholder in the enterprise is no longer a single stakeholder. You know, at odds with the other ones, but is uh, uh, each stakeholder is, in a sense, four or five different people. Well, I would go even further than that, and 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 just hold, let's take a good look at what's actually happening with the with the majority of our economy, which is investor owned. Right. What's what's happening there is that they're actually running, uh, chasing the the to the lowest common denominator, running businesses into the ground, often sometimes just to get bankruptcy or get bailouts. Or, uh, or they're undermining the environment or not paying their workers adequately, or they're delivering a, an inferior product so that they can get more profit out of it or produce things more cheaply. And so that's actually not working so well for us. I mean, look at the neighborhoods around us. Look at uh, what's happening with climate change and all, you know, all these externalities and pollution and extraction and maximizing the whole idea of maximizing profit at the expense of people and 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 communities and and even consumers none of that is working out very well and so that's part of why i mean we're embedded within a broader community of of cooperative businesses which we believe are a superior business model even when it's the farmers in a producer co-op who are who are running the business or who or when it's the consumers in a consumer co-op you know consumer grocery store co-ops or rei kind of co-ops even those are superior. And we just, we just believe that when you insert this extra element of democratic management and worker ownership, it takes it that much further. And then the ripples to the community are tremendous. Right. Now, the, the CEOs I talk to, you know, beg to differ. You know, I'm not talking about the CEO of, of Exxon. You know, 
I was talking to a guy a couple of months ago making these very arguments for letting his workers. It was a uh, this guy who makes like stationary supplies. And I was talking to him about letting his workers have even 5% of the shares of the company so they can begin to see it as a cooperative and be stakeholders in his enterprise. And he's like, I don't even have workers anymore. I had to outsource all my manufacturing to China. And I'm like, what do you mean you had to? And he goes, it's the only way I could compete against the competition, right? Sure. They went to China. They lowered their prices. I had to lower my prices too. Why are you telling, how am I going to hire Americans and give them a piece of my company and compete against all these other companies? Right. So that's the trajectory that the traditional economy is on right now. <laughs> and it's, it's just getting worse and worse. And then they're going from China. They're saying, well, we can't afford it either. So now it's going to India. And then they're exactly. saying, well, we can't afford it either. And now it's going to East Africa, right? I mean, just chasing the bottom dollar is just a ridiculous premise that actually we can add value. And then it's not all about the dollar ultimately that, that, consumers, you know, that they they express their value and often will choose something that um, benefits their community or that, that reflects their values, that it's not always about what is the cheapest thing, especially if the quality of it isn't as good or the service or how you feel being in that space feels exclusive. Right. Um, but when you're in the, it feels like though, when you're in the global market, you know, when you're competing, you know, against other brands on the shelf at Walmart or Costco, um, you've already lost the battle. It feels like these kinds of worker cooperative companies, they kind of work better in more bounded communities where the customers can actually experience the benefits of consuming in this way rather than in the other way. Well, some of it is also marketing and branding. I mean, you could look at the example of Equal Exchange, which is a pretty well-known brand. Um, and it's it's a, one of the larger worker co-ops um, in the country. And it's one of the brands that's well known. Um, they were able to build a whole movement and a, and a set of awareness around the idea of, of direct trade and fair trade and the whole idea of commodities that aren't going to, that aren't local and aren't, you know, you know, one's growing chocolate or coffee or bananas in their backyard in Massachusetts. Um, but that that they're able to to offer the value of saying, well, let's pay farmers fairly and let's have an integrated supply chain where there's transparency about where things are coming from, where the tea is sourced from, where the coffee is sourced from, uh, and how much people are making, whether they're the, the actual campesinos themselves, whether they're uh, people along the distribution chain. So there, I mean, I, I think that it's not necessarily true that every cooperative needs to be some boutique thing in order for it to be local and responsible. I think that, that in fact, our globalized international economy demands more transparency um, and that cooperative businesses offer an opportunity to do that because they're democratic, because they're doing education, because they are responsible to the community around them rather than shareholders who are you know, bounded by private boardrooms. Right. And at least they have the efficiency of not needing to pay up 90% of the revenue to these passive shareholders. You know, or, they, or the CEO, right? I right. mean, there's a glut among the manage the management, um, especially at the very apex, at the very top, when you have the presidents and CEOs making ridiculous amounts of money. Right. So if you want to look at layoffs and cutbacks, if you did it from the the top down rather than the bottom up, you know, it might be a lot more efficient because then you get to keep the workers who are actually making the things and lose the the blubber that's really just uh, accumulating the value that's been created. 
Well, exactly. I think a lot of a lot of what we're seeing is people getting out of the scarcity mentality and realizing that there's so much wealth. <laughs> so many of these companies, the very ones you're talking about, are, are making record profits, um, and that really the 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 expenses in main t- is propping up this billionaire class, this millionaire class, and it's not even just the one percent. I mean, those people we don't even see. Those yeah. those people are being <laughs> driven around in private limousines. But it's you know even the ten percent, even the the top fifteen percent. I just heard about a holiday that they have in the UK. I don't know if you know about this um, called Fat Cat Tuesday, and uh, I think it's the first Tuesday in January. It's it's like the second business day of the year or something, and it's the day where CEOs have already made as much as all of their workers will make for the entire year. <laughs> by, and it's by like lunchtime or something on, on the second Tuesday of the year. That's the economy that we're dealing with right now. It's absurd. <laughs> it is absurd. It is absurd. And then, and then you know, beyond that, almost almost beyond the economic argument. You know, this show is called Team Human because what I'm trying to do is help people understand that you know we we are a team. You know, there's Team Human versus Team Machine or versus Team Capitalism sure. or all of these automatic uh, uh, operating systems that mean to dehumanize us. I mean, you you also do work in the gay community, the black community, the 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 women's rights community. You know, all of these yeah. uh, marginalized communities. I mean, I, there's, there's people listening to this, you know, people like me who might say, Hey, I'm a white man with a college education. I've got a competitive advantage here. <laughs> why do I want to mess with y'all? Um, but the real reason why they should is because it's lonely out there, you know, that there's something about solidarity that's, that's bigger than just the economic argument. I understand the economic argument and the Marxist argument is, is super important right now as people are starving, but there's also the, the, I hate to use a word like this, but there's the spiritual component, the social component of actually connecting and 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 conspiring with other human beings. You know, well, that's also Marxist, right? I mean, the idea that that we're alienated from each other, um, and I think that that even when you opened by talking about having some suburban job where you just kind of go and you punch in and you do your work and you come home and you hang out with your kids or whatever, that that's incredibly it's alienating, it's lonely. I mean, that's what Marx was talking about. And so the whole premise of having a more socialized economy is by overcoming alienation or what, uh, what Fanon talks about as disalienation, which is not saying that like, let's erase and forget that we were ever alienated, but how do we overcome it and, be, and come through it and in, a, in a better position than we were before? With all the hindsight of, of, of remembering how disconnected we were and how, how hard that is and keeping that in mind while we're building connections and community with each other. And what really is the main obstacle to that? Is it our fear of each other as people? Is it our our, inhibi- our sexual inhibitions? Is it our gender confusion? Is it our, our racial confusion? What, or are those just all symptoms of some greater alienation, some greater fear? Well, people have different opinions about that, but my, in my <laughs> view, <laughs> in my view, I, th- I think that those things are all, they, they are interconnected. I mean, I studied anthropology and political economy and, you know, all, all those other things that you mentioned around uh, racial liberation and uh, queer liberation. So that's part of my background. And I think that they're all interconnected, that, that capitalism and some of the economic and political and historical realities and contingencies produce this hyper-individualized thing 
right? As cons- when, when capital markets needed more consumers, they needed to create this idea of an individual. Not even, a fa- I mean, it started with classes of pe- races of people, then classes of people, then families. Now it's down to the individual. You're targeting not your family, but your 12-year-old daughter <laughs> and, not, and not her sister who's four years younger, right? I mean, we're, that's the whole thing about, about marketing, especially in this, this late capitalist stage. It's really getting directly at the individual. And so in the process of overcoming, and it's not just as consumers, right? It's also as workers and everything else. So everything about our life is hyper-individualized up to the point where what's the idea of maturing and growing up? You come out of adolescence and you're supposed to be able to find your own little apartment and your own little job, right? There isn't a sense of, of living uh, cooperatively in a, um, in a one big building or one big house where maybe you have your own bedroom or something, but you're sharing a kitchen and you're eating meals together and you're singing songs together um, and having, uh, having holidays and all of that stuff. That you only do that with your family. And once, once you're properly independent and mature, independence equals being individualized, right? And so mm-hmm. overcoming all of that, I think, it, yeah, there is a spiritual piece to it. There is a social piece to it. Ultimately, it, it is also economic, that this is part of how it's not fundamental to how we are as human beings. It's something that has been intentionally crafted and manufactured, that it needs to be learned over and over again, because children aren't born that way, and they don't naturally think that way. But we have to be socialized into the idea of individualism. And so I think that I, that's part of why I have so much hope in overcoming this, because fundamentally, as humans, and I know this, you know, from my anthropology background, we are hardwired to be cooperative and interdependent. And we wouldn't have survived otherwise. That's how we made it through as, uh, as naked primates out there with, with Mm -hmm. not a lot in, 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 in so far as fangs and claws. (laughs) Right. It wasn't our competitive advantage. It was our, our collaborative advantage. Right. We created this thing called community in order to survive this thing called society. That's, that's how we got through. Right. Um, This thing called team human. Yeah, team human. Exactly. Hashtag team human. <laughs> oh, gosh. Esteban Kelly. Yeah, getting to see – I was like, I don't know, a month ago at that crazy meeting. But um, just getting to see you and look in your eyes, I just – you know, I just had to hug you right away. <laughs> because, uh, the first thing I felt – because, you know, I've read your stuff and watched your videos. And the, the first and main thing I feel when I see you or talk to you is just – love, you know, I'm sorry to admit <laughs> that, but it is, it's just pure old love. And, um, the, your, your ability to, to bring that out in people and really to teach us, I think all the various things you're teaching are a form really of that, you know, we can call it, you know, support and mutual aid and all these things, but it's that, uh, kind of ineffable quirky force that uh, makes us happy to be together. I mean, you, you, you exude that and teach mm-hmm. that and, uh, and share that and implement it in a way that, uh, you know, is not just beautiful, but is, you know, highly constructive and helps eradicate the, the pain and poverty and alienation all around us. And yeah. really, <laughs> you know, for that, I just really want to, uh, you know, thank you for being such a, uh, 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 a leader and coach and member of uh, of this team. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that a lot of times on the left, there can be this sense of uh, we're all str- we're all in the struggle and we're struggling. Or if we're dealing with racism, then we have to deal with guilt and shame. And we just don't come from a culture. Those of us who, in my worker co op, which does education and training and community organizing, right, called Aorta. 
the Anti-Oppression mm-hmm. Resource and Training Alliance. Right. We believe fundamentally in a politics of of hope and moving past guilt and shame. Not that those are invalid feelings, but they come up and you just kind of zen them out. That you move on, you you interrogate where they're coming from, and that's not where we dwell. That's not where we we believe that change comes from being inspired and having really understanding your power to 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 move through something. What are what what can we learn or what are actions we can take to change things fundamentally rather than dwelling in that dark place. So I think that's that's some of that spirit that you were talking about and it's it's incredible being in day long or weekend long conversations about uh, class and race and gender and homophobia and transphobia and all these things and people talking about, well, I have this background and this is privileged and I'm coming to terms with this, this and this. And this is the first time I've had these conversations without feeling drained and without feeling guilty and without feeling ashamed. Um, because I think that's what we need. You know, we're mm-hmm. making this all this team human stuff move forward. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Team Human today. And uh, we're going to keep up with you Everybody knows I'll have all the links up where they can find your stuff cool. and, uh, and get involved. That was a remix of my conversation with Esteban Kelly, Executive Director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Before that, we heard from Astra Taylor and Thomas Gogi of the Debt Collective. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Team Human. These interviews were culled from our show archive, which you can find by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking archive. Team Human is supported entirely by listeners. Soon you'll be able to support us on Patreon, so look out for that. It'll be at patreon.com slash teamhuman, where you'll be able to become a subscriber to the show. There will be all sorts of subscriber exclusives and rewards. Your subscription, then or right now, sustains the work and numerous hours that go into producing this weekly show and keeps us advertisement-free. So thanks for your support. If you're not in a position to support us financially, you can help us by sharing the episodes and rating us on iTunes or your favorite platform. We've got an exciting group of interviews on the way, beginning with a two-part interview with acclaimed writer, thinker, and storyteller Walter Kern. We're also going to renew a segment from my old media squad show called Real People Doing Real Things. So if you're a member of Team Human out there doing something real in the real physical world, we want to hear your story. Email us at steven at teamhuman.fm. That's steven, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at teamhuman.fm to share your story. Thanks for being on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.